Welcome to Measures of Truth, a His Dark Materials podcast. I'm Caitlin. I'm Alan. I'm Francis. And I'm Anya. And today we're discussing chapters 19 through 22 of The Amber Spyglass, the third book in the His Dark Materials trilogy. Chapter 19, Lyra and Her Death. Lyra, Will, and the Galavespians try to follow the crowd of dead people into their village, but get turned away and redirected to a holding area of living people who have arrived too early and must wait to die. They get invited into a hovel, and Lyra tells the people there a ridiculous and entirely unbelievable story about their history and their quest to get into the land of the dead. Because, of course, the truth is so believable and makes so much sense. I know. I was just thinking that. <laughs> yeah, and then my talking polar bear friend. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> The people there explain that everyone has a death, a quasi-person, almost like a demon, that follows them around their whole lives unnoticed and unseen. All of the people in the holding area can see and interact with their deaths, who will gently tell them when it is time to go and escort them to the world of the dead. Tialis tells Lyra it's time to stop this nonsense and go to Asriel, when Lyra replies that she is happy to die if she gets to see Roger again, her death presents itself and says it will guide them all to the world of the dead. In chapter 20, Climbing, Mary uses her rock climbing expertise to devise a system of ropes and climb into the tree canopy with her amber spyglass to investigate the sraf. She sees that the sraf are caught in an invisible current pulling them toward the sea against the prevailing wind. Most of the flowers on the seed pod trees face upward and fail to catch any sraf since it's moving laterally. Only the occasional flower that's facing away from the sea gets pollinated with the sraf. She tells the Mulefa that this is why there are fewer seed pods now than there were before, but that she doesn't know how to fix it. Meanwhile, Father Gomez finds the window that Mary climbed through and enters Mulefa world. In chapter 21, The Harpies, Lyra's death leads the party to the edge of a large body of water, where they debate whether or not to euthanise a wounded toad. Soon after, they are greeted by a creepy dude in a boat who is totally not Sharon, who tells them that he can take them to the world of the dead, but Lyra must leave Pan behind. Not as a rule, but as a matter of physics. Lyra tearfully promises Pan that she will find him as soon as they get out of the world of the dead, while the boat guy voices his scepticism that they'll ever escape. As the boat gets farther and farther away, all of our heroes are filled with the most intense physical and emotional pain they've ever experienced as they are separated from a part of their soul. At last, they make it to their destination, where they are greeted by some harpies. Lyra begins to tell her tall tale once more, and a harpy calls her her liar, 
and brutally attacks her. Will uses a subtle knife to cut through the door and get them into the world of the dead. Chapter 22, The Whisperers. Will tends to Lyra's bleeding scalp wound while Lyra panics about her inability to tell lies. They are surrounded by ghosts who are excited by the sudden appearance of living people. The Lady Salmachia wonders if choosing to leave Pan behind was the choice Lyra was prophesied to make, but Tialis doesn't think so. The ghosts and the Galavespians work together to locate Roger, who is about an hour's walk away, so they set off in his direction. Uh, so general feelings, I think, I don't know, some time ago I remember hearing that this bit was, like, why Philip Pullman wrote this series. Like, the work going to the world of the dead was, like, his first idea of the series. I, I don't remember if that's true or where I read it, I, but it feels like it now that we're here. And so I really enjoyed the, everything that happens in the world of the dead because it feels like this is what he wanted to write, so he's doing a really good job about it. Yeah, that sounds right to me. It feels like the heart of the story in a way. This is like the very center of everything when I think of the trilogy, even though it's like, obviously it's in the third book near the middle end, but like, yeah, it's like the core of what everything else has been leading to this. It's interesting though, because on the one hand, I totally get what you're saying. Like it is what the whole series is leading to, but also there are parts of us parts of it that feel very kind of like slapdash you know like the writing is really good uh Pullman feels really invested in it and I'm also really invested in it like I enjoy it but if I like step back and kind of look at it from a more analytical position it does kind of feel like I don't know it feels less planned out the golden compass and the subtle knife felt like they had more of a structure. This feels just like more of a serial in a way. Right. And it feels like he was trying to get to this moment and just kind of like building as he went to get there and not thinking about like a traditional three-act structure as much, which doesn't make it bad. It's just kind of different than the other books. It's different, but it gives me sort of if anyone played the prince of persia games there's the second game in that series is the warrior within and it suddenly gets real dark like very emo but it's quite a nice <laughs> change from the kind of very bright colors of the first game and this kind of has the same thing it's gone we've we've had this fantastical world and now we're just in a sort of pit of misery and hopelessness in a way mm -hmm. but without being like they're never going to get out it's just like oh this isn't a nice place at all and I, I like that kind of darkness that bit bit of a change there i think this is like you were saying francis the most haunting part of the entire trilogy i see what you're saying anya about i think what what we're feeling there and i definitely feel this too is kind of the warnings that a lot of writing teachers will give about allegory Mm -hmm. how it kind of takes over the story. I think this is the most allegorical part of the entire trilogy. Yeah. No, I There's think you're spot on. It's like he is writing to theme. Yes. Yeah. More theme than is controlling plot. the plot. Yeah. Or yeah. character or yeah. So it feels you can really feel it. You feel like 
or at least I did when I was reading it, I feel like the most precarious in my interpretation of it because I feel like he's literally trying to say something and I can't quite understand. Like there is definitely something there. It's not just like associations that you can make. He's like, I am saying this, you know? Mm -hmm. And I really like a lot of the thematic work that he's doing and a lot of the world building. Like, I love the harpies. I love the despair. I love the, like, having to be separated from your demon. I, I mean, I love the the death as, like, a, a its own entity. Like, there's something that's just, like, really creepy and evocative about that. But then at the same time, there ends up being, like, some kind of scaffolding to support that that feels a little unnecessary. Like... I mean, I'm kind of jumping ahead to Caitlin's least favorite part, but the whole like suburbs of the dead and the like. Oh, yeah, that should have been cut. 100 meal share. You know, like that's the kind of shit that I'm talking about where it feels like he was just kind of like thinking of like, okay, they need to have the deaths. So how are they going to find out about the deaths? Well, they'll just like hang out with these people in a hovel for a while. You know, Uh, all of that should have been cut. They should have just gone straight to the boat. Yeah, 100 percent. It was all stupid. Yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, it, it added nothing to the story. It added nothing to the... It added absolutely nothing. And it was stu- dumb world. Anyway, sorry. We'll, I'll, I'll rant about that. In it almost part. feels like... I say this as someone who has read half of a Terry Pratchett book ever. But it feels a little bit Terry Pratchett in that, like... So the half of the book that I have read is Good Omens. But it's, like, a little bit of that kind of, like dry british humor the like bureaucracy of dying yeah he wanted to have the scene of being told like oh you're not dead yet you have to go somewhere and wait to die you know Mm -hmm. but it just like that kind of clashes with the rest of it thematically i love the way also that like it's, it's just surprises me that no one's tried to do what they do they just go okay well, we're not dead, but can we just go anyway? And nothing mm-hmm. seems to stop them. They get on the boat and they're just like, oh. But also the fact that the ferryman has knows what will happen to living people who have demons when they go on the boat implies that it has happened before. Mm-hmm. But where are the living people in the land of the dead? Because they say that there isn't any. It doesn't really make sense to me. It's weird. I would assume that eventually they die. One especially because they said, like, the ghosts, when they go through them, they, like, steal a little bit of their life force. Right. And I I do think they would have died shortly. Well, okay, spoilers. But But, but if they stay there too long, they will die. True, but also, like... Um, it it still feels like it's completely everyone's so surprised that they're alive, and yet they're also like, you know, it's it it, it obviously has happened before. So why is everyone surprised? There are people who've been there for X amount of time. Like it just doesn't quite add up, but that doesn't make it bad. And also, like when they're in with the ghosts, like that's the ghosts of every single person who's ever died in any world ever. So there's got to be. Billions and billions and billions. So and just yet, because the people they talk to don't remember 
anybody living before doesn't mean it hasn't happened. And yet almost everybody that they meet when they first land has had a demon. So I don't know, like, what proportion of worlds have demons or what proportion of dead people who've ever died are from Lyra's worlds, but that made me side-eye a little bit. (laughs) It's like when you ride the ferry to get to Disneyland and they they can drop you off, you know, in this land or that land. He was like, "Oh, you guys have demons. I know the land to take." You oh, to. I see. Like so there's the like demon part several different park. wooden doors, and they yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, <laughs> not to be a stickler, but that's definitely Disney World, not Disneyland. <laughs> oh, you're right. Yes, you're totally right. I've only been to Disney World, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, um, so favorite favorite parts. part. <laughs> I just like that it's absolutely hopeless. Like, it feels like purgatory the whole way through. It feels, mm-hmm. you know, in a manner, a little bit Kafkaesque if, when we were talking about the um, the kind of bureaucracy side of it. It just feels mm. like the most boring. Mm-hmm. It feels like Swindon. W- what is Swindon? Swindon is a town in the UK, which is just notorious for being mostly IT firms. And kind oh, okay. of, like, it's actually, it's actually not a bad place, but, like, it just has that reputation for being so dull it's it's deliberately encoded to be super super bland and kind of and i sort of like that i thought that was that that made that gave it that gray overcast feel without really ever describing that it felt gray and overcast just directly i quite like that uh my favorite is when the harpy attacks lyra and yells liar, 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 but in Lyra's head it kind of just becomes Lyra. Mm-hmm. And that and then they become interchangeable. That's a scene that really just stuck with me since the first time I read the book. And I would just like think about it sometimes. So I, I do really love that scene. Um but I also really love the Galavespians talking about Will and Lyra because it's one of the first times that we see them come to understand that. The children aren't important, are not important because Azrael needs, wants them because they are important of yeah. themselves and what they are doing is important. Mm. And I like that change in them. And then everything the ferryman says was just incredibly well written, but I really loved his like creepy, what you are, you'll know soon enough line. Mm-hmm. That, that was really good. Yeah. Mine was kind of related. I really liked the contrast of Lyra's storytelling in the two different chapters. You know, at first, the dead are just kind of like, or not the dead, the non-dead, the barely alive are like eating it up and are just kind of like seem to believe it all. Um, And it almost like gives her this false sense of security and then when the harpies just can like immediately see through it. I love that contrast. And I love the, the like crisis of faith that it evokes in Lyra crisis of faith in herself and her own abilities. And then my other favorite thing, um, which is also kind of my least favorite thing at the same time was just, yeah, that bit of world building about the death as kind of like its own, separate entity like it doesn't make sense in terms of the philosophy or world building of this story and it feels like it comes out of nowhere but it works so well aesthetically with what's going on here 
And I almost want like a whole separate spinoff world or story where it's diving more into just this idea of of like having a death that follows you around. Yeah, where like everybody can see it the way that they can see demons in Lyra's world would mm-hmm. be very cool. Yeah, and there is that one girl who they find who seems to be from a world like that. Um, mm-hmm. I think that would be super cool if just in case Pullman needs like another Dark Materials spinoff idea. <laughs> I, I've always gotten the feeling that that's kind of what happened with this bit, that he had this huge idea and wanted to write out this huge thing, but then had to either keep it short or maybe he did write out a huge thing and then was forced to edit it down. Because mm-hmm. there are so many like little one-off things that make no sense. But if he had written a whole lot more, maybe they did. Yeah, I guess it's just that like so much of what he's doing is really sprinkled throughout the three books and it feels really cohesive. Yeah. Whereas this is something that like shows up here, is really awesome and really evocative, but we have never seen it before and it doesn't really matter after this. It's just a way to get them to the world of the dead. Yeah. I just I I like how all of this structurally ties back together with the golden compass and even the subtle knife to a degree. Like you can look at the suburbs of the dead a little bit like Sitagatse, you know, full of like creepy half people who have been like hollowed out by the specters, a place that is like where people live, but really they don't live. And then they move on to, you know, a place that's a lot like Bolvanger where all of these children, like you said, when they first get on the shore, had demons, but now they don't. And they miss their demon. And Lyra has a lot of compassion for them on that score. And Balvanger is brought up several times in these chapters, too. So I think there's just like a lot of structural echoing that's happening that feels intentional to me. Mm-hmm. And that like draws all of the stories. Like I said, this feels like the core. It feels like those we're almost foreshadowing for this. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. I think like when writers do that, that is my favorite thing. I love like that. Like the kind of horror stuff. and disgust we were supposed to feel at Bolvanger is what everyone has to look forward to for eternity. For eternity, yes. Yeah. And it's like, ugh, awful. Um, least favorite part. I'm gonna go first. Because the suburbs of the dead are stupid. Why 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 do they go there? <laughs> Why do they have to find a death? Why does only one of them have to find a death, but the other three don't? Why is some lady making stew? Why is that her eternity? Like, I'm sorry, the women have to cook for men in life and in death. How did they grow the potatoes? I know they also (laughs) mentioned alcohol. Yes. And the alcohol kind of makes sense. I don't know. But the potatoes, where do they come from? (sighs) (laughs) Why, Why, if you're stuck there in a hut, why don't you just say, oh, let's just go on. Let's just see what's next. Where did they get the like, material to make the slums? Well, yes. Why? What happens if you do go through the, the first, like the first dude that turned them away for being alive? Do you just get in line for the boat? Is there more than one boat? Why is... Is this secretly oh, Hilbert's it's... Hotel? Where it's infinitely, it's an infinitely yeah. long slum and there's infinitely many people coming in. How can you be sure that you've got enough space? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, I was confused about the death thing because I was like, okay, so is Lyra's death the one that ferries them across? But it does not seem to be the case, right? 
No, the ferryman no, just guides was definitely he's a different a, character. Yeah, and that like he brings them to the dock, and then he's like, "See you later, dudes." Right. Like yeah. what the fuck? Peace. Yeah. <laughs> but also, uh, 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 but uh, why couldn't they've just gone to the dock themselves if it was just right there? Why? Uh, why yeah, did they hardly any needed of that a have guide. to happen? They saw yeah. the dock earlier. I don't. The story would have made so much more sense. If they just walked to the dock and got on the boat and had the emotional bit with the demon. Like, mm-hmm. oh, I also really loved that bit. That I loved, incredible. Oh, yeah, that bit is amazing. Yeah, and, dumb. I hate, I hate all of it. It does make me wonder how they're going to do this or if they're going to do this in the show. God, I hope they, they just skip it. They kind of have to, though. I think they will do no, it. No, just go straight to the dock. Please. <laughs> <laughs> But I worry that it's like, you know, what Anya was saying, that they could play it in a kind of Terry Pratchett, Douglas Adams, weirdly funny kind of way of like, you know, like Beetlejuice or something. Mm. When they, if you've seen that movie, like when you die, it's like being at the DMV and like, here's your number and you have to sit there and then there's like now serving two and your number is one billion and you're like, oh shit, Jesus Christ. (laughs) Uh, It's like... That's funny, but you don't want this part to really be funny, right? You want it to be like ominous and yeah, 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 exactly that. Yeah, I pretty much agree with Kate. I think that everything that happens in the suburbs is like interesting as you're reading it, but it doesn't really serve a larger story purpose, and it didn't need to be there. And and kind of what I said about the deaths before, where like I love them, but also. I don't think they really work in this story. The deaths are weird. Basically, this whole section reminds me much more of someone like Garth Nix and mm. his style of writing, like the oh, um, Days of the Week uh, septology, yeah. which is I, I really like, and they're really good books, but they are a very different feeling. They're still dealing with similar sorts of concepts. It's such a good call, Francis. Yeah, that, (laughs) oh man, that nails the mood. That's really good. Yeah, it it just gave me that sort of feel. And in that, I really wanted, like, I guess playing into that style, I really would have liked to see Will's death, even if Will didn't, just to get a hint that there was a death for Will and the death for Will was watching, but we just never see anything more. I think that would have had some impact, which... We just, it, it's just weird that we only see Lyra's death. It's like, yep. why not give us the Galavespians one? Do the Galavespians have the same size death as them? Like, why not just yeah, do that? Yeah, yeah. Like, you're already, you're already introducing these, like, ridiculously arbitrary characters. Why not just have them in there? So the, the Galavespians do uh, get the short stick because when... Will realizes that his demon has been pulled out of him. Him and Lyra have that really sweet moment when they look at each other and they both realize that their demons are together now. And at least they have that. Mm. But fuck the Galavespians. <laughs> right? <laughs> Nobody cares about their demons. <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, I'm glad that you uh, brought attention to that moment because I really loved that too. Um, yeah. And I kind of forgot about it as we were planning for the episode. There's a couple of moments like that, like where Lyra has a plan and she tells it to Will and the look on his face makes her heart like skip a beat. 
Mm-hmm. It, it's like a very important emotional moment for her, like a keystone. I don't moment. even think she tells him that she has a plan. She just sort of says something, and he understands. He that, understands. Okay, we've yes. got a purpose now. Right, like they're yeah. on the same wavelength, and it means so much to her in that place in that moment. It's yeah. like a very important moment, and yeah. it's really Ooh. well done. Maybe I should go back and change my favorite part because I feel like that is a really it's like a part of this that you can kind of miss if you're not paying attention but it's really good like that even more deepening relationship between will and lyra in these chapters because as we know the galavespians don't count so they are the only two things alive here yes (laughs) (laughs) uh the line that i was thinking of earlier was will she said i'm so glad we came down here together he heard a tone in her voice, and he saw an expression on her face that he knew and liked more than anything he'd ever known. It sh- it showed she was thinking of something daring, but she wasn't ready to speak of it yet. Yeah. Uh, my least favorite thing was also kind of, uh, Francis was talking about Prince of Persia earlier. Mine was kind of inspired by video games, too, um, like the Mass Effect series. Where you would like walk around and depending who you have in your party, you'd get like different things would come up, you know, for different people and uh, and they would have commentary on it and stuff. That's part of the fun of replaying those games is, you know, absolutely work working with that. Yeah. And so I was wondering when we're reading through this, I was like, wait a minute, they're in the land of the dead. Like, shouldn't Balthamus have something to say about like any of this? What's the angels view on this are the angels in the world of the dead do they just discorporate and that's it like they're only made of the dusty stuff and there's no spirit or how does it like where is he he's like he's gone he's just not a part of the story now and that's he's slowly been falling out of the narrative where he was a very important companion to will in the beginning of the book and you just almost don't notice him go away and i know he's not done i know that he comes back later in the book but I just wish that there had been some moment between him and Will that was either like a falling out, that there was a little bit more drama to it, and or that it mattered to Will more, or that he thought about it. He's just gone. Um, and so I didn't like that. I, I would have wanted the angel perspective on all of this stuff, the world building in this part, and, and I just wonder what he would have thought about it all. I do have a feeling that he wouldn't have been able to go with them. That even that would have been interesting and would have been like a way to not have him here, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I had one singular problematic, which isn't a huge one, but it sort of left a bit of a bad taste in my mouth, which was just that the, the Malefa are obviously conscious beings with culture, with creation, with innovation. And they're portrayed sort of like a first contact peoples i they are portrayed as very much living their traditional lifestyle not really trying to innovate not really wondering why they can't it just there was this tiny little colonialist hint there and it was just a tiny thing but it, i just it just made me go well why though I feel like in previous chapters, at least, Pullman has gone out of his way, actually, to make them seem, like, innovative and they, like, have a lot of their exactly. own technology. Exactly. So why don't they hear? Why why all of a sudden did 
like it just it just feels a little weird. Maybe it's just I me. see. I see. You're saying that that's like a change from the way that he's been characterized yes. before. It almost feels like an earlier draft. Mm, interesting. And it's really too bad because there's a lot in the in the the Marion Malifa chapter where you can see if he'd just written it a little differently, you can see how it would be would have been required for yeah. like someone like us and someone like them to have come together and work together to to solve this problem and like you needed things from them and you needed things from us. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. But be- but it but it became more like they were just giving Mary whatever she needed instead of focusing on them working together. Sorry. I see. Yeah. yeah. Like they're her helpers, yeah. Yeah. And also are the Malefa a purely one culture species? It might also be that there are Mulefa on different continents or something like that, but they just don't know them. Maybe. I, I do I do get it, but it just, yeah. Anyway, that was yeah. all I had on that. It's kind of like what we talked about problematics last time of the white saviorism yeah. structure that's happening here. I, I will say from last time, because I don't think it's in this bit, I think it's in the last bit, where something that I appreciate about it is how they're when they tell her the story about the serpent going through the wheel and all that stuff, they're like, oh, no, 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 that's a metaphor. Like, that's not real. And that is something that when it comes to colonialism is usually not given to quote unquote primitive people that like, oh, primitive people believe literally whatever their, you know, religious thing is. And they have no they're like completely credulous, right? They have no yeah. sense of irony or metaphor when it's it's like the exact opposite, actually. Like most native or indigenous cultures had a very sophisticated mixing of like a story consciousness with like a real consciousness. And it's Europeans who are very much stuck in a binary. Like we're very worried as European and post-European cultures as like, what is real? We must figure it out. What is a story? That is obviously fake. We must renounce it or else. And it's like other people are like, nah, it's it's okay. You can mix it. You can, you can tell the difference. Stop being so anxious about that. The other um, thing just to point out there is that a, that sort of approach comes from people forgetting that every religion and belief system by definition has been has started in exactly the same way it is an it is an indigenous belief system drawing on the history before it and influencing the history after it but fundamentally it is just another belief system none of the big organized religions came from no like just just sprung up fully formed as a you know horribly oppressive regime they weren't you know it's maybe scientology aside but like <laughs> oh i'm going i'm going to get people turning up at my house now um <laughs> but like genuinely aside from some fairly recent constructed religions the vast majority of them do draw heavily on traditional values on on traditional belief systems so i don't see why why anyone draws any distinction between them yeah i'm like if you imply to a christian that you know mary and jesus were a metaphor they're gonna punch you 
Yeah, they yeah. freak out. So why? So then, when they think that other cultures think that their religions are real, like, or they think, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Then they look down on them, and I'm like, it's it, you're the exact same. Yeah, everything's <laughs> the same. All right, science. I like to. We have this bit here with Mary where we're talking about dark matter or seraph, I guess, pollinating the flowers because of the orientation of their motion and stuff like that, vis-a-vis the the orientation of the flowers. And this is like clearly kind of a metaphor or something for climate change affecting everyone and uh, the future of civilization. Like the, they can't, the Milefa cannot live as they live and who they are. They will not, they will cease to exist as intelligent creatures because of the disturbance of the motion of dust. While the scientific idea of dark matter pollinating trees is very bizarre to me, like that doesn't make any sense. Yeah, it, um, it makes no sense. No sense, yeah. At all. I would be interested to, like, it's too bad that he made it, because I feel like the seed pods would happen anyways. They just wouldn't have the same effect. Consciousness stuff in it. Yeah, right. I yeah. see. They wouldn't be... Uh, no, the but, oil but, but but Philip Pullman didn't didn't write it that way. He definitely still wrote it that like they do not get a seed pod unless the seed pods get dust. So I'm just saying like it would have been more interesting if they had like some dead pods or something like that that didn't do what the other pods do. That would have made more sense to me. Yeah. Or if they but were he, like smaller and softer or something. Yeah, something like that. Yeah, or they're using them, but it's not. Like those, they're more animalistic versions of Mulefa who are not coming into consciousness, right? Because they're not having the interaction with dust because that tree was not dustified, but it was still, <clears throat> you know what I mean? Like that would yeah. be interesting if there was some kind of bifurcation in their society, but there's nothing like hmm. that. I mean, this idea is weird, but it's clearly like a metaphor for climate change, I think. Yeah, like I still get what he's saying. It just doesn't really make sense with the way that I understand trees to work <laughs> right <laughs> i do also feel like the whole talking about, i don't know if this was intentional because i'm not sure how much in the general consciousness this was there is also the shutdown of the gulf stream theories with some good evidence behind them that the gulf stream essentially might stop happening and then that completely screws the rest of the climate and I don't know if this was a direct reference to that or whether this was just conveniently very similar. Another thing I did want to talk about was um, that the Malefa, again, it surprised me, considering that they have good weaving techniques, considering that they have fairly advanced abilities to create ropes and fabric, why didn't they try climbing trees? Like, I get that it makes less sense for a heavy land mammal to well assuming mammal to not climb trees but also they know how pulleys work especially mm -hmm. if they're diamond shaped though like how do you even grip the tree i don't know well like you don't need to if you've got pulleys because you can just do what like it's not that much of a jump once you've in invented the snatch block to know that you can do some very clever things with how pulleys work. So are we saying they don't have maths? But if they don't have maths, then... Hmm. I don't know. It just, again, something about it feels weird. It feels like something they arbitrarily didn't try, which Mary arbitrarily can do. 
and thus she's yeah. important. Like they did put together a very epic treehouse in a very short amount of time. So why didn't which... they do that fucking before? <laughs> right. Yeah, no, that's what I'm saying. <laughs> yeah. yeah, they're like, but oh, also, we never like, they, of this. Yeah. they must do something similar to that because previous to Mary, their houses still had roofs. Yeah, I just feel like they must have had something to get up there to repair a roof. You know, mm-hmm. something like that. Right. It's weird. Yeah. And then there should be like some kind of adventurous type group yeah, of Mulefa exactly. who are like, yeah, who are, who are like swinging the from tree to tree. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Who are like, oh, I dig this. And if it was like addressed to like, oh, yes, you know, long ago we did, you know, there was a society that did try to like live in the trees, but it was very bad for the trees. And now we know better. Like it was a boundary crossed. That would be interesting. That would like tell us something about like the intentionality of their society and how they use technology in like a purposeful way to cultivate the trees and live in harmony, you know, as opposed to like we had technology, but we renounced it like that would be interesting. But we don't get anything like that. The feeling is that they have always lived this way forever and ever. Yeah. And like we can assume maybe it's just this community and their surrounding communities like we again we don't know what's happening on other continents yep 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 um in the science section i just wanted to mention that we keep coming across the theme of entanglement that was introduced earlier as a scientific idea with the lodestone resonators that what i appreciate pullman doing is not just introducing a gadget that uses science but like incorporating science as a theme in the story. And so like, I think it was in the previous part where it talks about like some photons that get entangled between Lyra and um, Will in a kind of playful bit of uh, prose, just bringing that idea of entanglement back up between those two characters and what you read out earlier, Caitlin, about Will being able to tell what Lyra meant, like, there's things left unsaid, but they understand each other. Mm-hmm. There's a there's a clear emotional and mental entanglement between Lyra and Will. And then, of course, we have the big scene of everybody's demon or whatever part of their soul is being separated from them at the shores of the ferryman. Um, and so a part of you is entangled with yourself and that gets separated and it's physically and emotionally painful and mentally painful. So like entanglement is just a theme in the story. And I think that's really good. in in terms of how this kind of science fantasy stuff gets written sometimes where it'll be like a one-off, like, Oh, they're t- clearly like talking about DNA or something like that. And it's like neat, but not really a part of the fabric of the story. Pullman isn't doing that. Like this is more, integrated and sophisticated and i think it says something about like what science where it it holds a place uh in the world like as a symbol like it science in the fabric of the story is like a good thing right like it's deeply woven into the story is what i'm trying to say yeah that's an interesting point because or it's good to bring up here because obviously other things get separated later and you could and it's the same type of thing yeah it's interesting this kind of makes me think more about how pullman described the demons separating i mean we kind of touched on it a little bit before but we didn't talk about it in detail 
he does describe it like there's a lot of like shame involved and the person feels like they are betraying someone who they love which is like a really interesting and specific type of emotional pain it's not just about being wounded right it's about hurting someone else and that being the wound i mean like i love what pullman did but based on this concept of entanglement i almost wish that he had had lyra try to reach out to pan more and like the way that she used to and like focusing not just on like the shame and the betrayal but also yeah or like having something ripped out of your heart but like an emptiness or like a void in a way lack of entanglement more there definitely does seem to be when they're in the world of the dead some kind of veil drawn between her and pan where they like even they even try to use the lodestone resonator and it doesn't work Mm -hmm. where they seem to be cut off in a really fundamental way. I just wish we saw Lyra try more. Yeah, I um, agree. To reach out to Pan, I guess, is what I'm kind of missing. Yeah, I would love for Lyra to try to reach out and not be able to and like and really feel that failure. It's just you saying it like that hurts. Yeah. No. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. It's like, oh, yeah, I mean. It would have just been the icing on the pain cake. I enjoy that as we've been talking, our religion section has been getting longer. I know, it's getting bigger. Because that's... Sorry. That's what we needed in our podcast. (laughs) I'm I'm only adding examples to a point I'm going to make later, but I was just suddenly got really interested, so... (laughs) Uh, That was my transition. Okay. I find it really interesting, like, the one torture that they do have is basically people being confronted with their own awfulness. Mm. I mean... It's shame uh, again. Yeah, like, obviously, the the harpies are, they're definitely, like, adding some stuff over the top, but, like, the core of what they're doing is based on what people actually did. And it's not necessarily like breaking rules, right? It's things that you feel bad about already. Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. It's not like, oh, you didn't know this was wrong. It has to be something that people already knew was wrong and like feel bad about. Penitence and self-flagellation in another form. There's the speaking of the boatman. I found this quite interesting because it pops up in quite a few different mythologies. So in general, a spiritual being that guides the souls of the dead to where they are judged or to the afterlife, depending, are known as psychopomps, which is from Greek. And the classic one is uh, Charon, which I pronounced earlier erroneously Sharon because I forgot my Greek. Don't you perform chi-squared tests all the time? Shouldn't you know the Yes, yes, I should. I should, yes. But, <laughs> Okay. Um, Feel shame. Yeah, exactly. How is shame spelt there? <laughs> um, but yeah, there's also a bunch of other traditions from a similar area a lot of the time, but with boatmen who are psychopomps. So you have Urshan Abbey in um, kind of ancient Mesopotamian. 
have um, Hamartabal. Again, my pronunciation on these might also be horrendous, but hey. Um, so he is the same as the above, but the later Assyrian version of that older Urshanabi um, character. Also, you have Ferryman um, acting as psychopomps in literature and in fable. So not necessarily in directly religion, but you have the you have some boatmen in the Nartsagas, which are from the Norse Caucasus, and um, you have the ferryman in the Brothers Grimm's uh, The Devil with the Three Golden Hairs, and also going back to our old friend Dante's Inferno, you have um, Flegias, who is uh, who does take people over the sticks in a ferry, even though he is actually a king, uh, which is interesting but yeah it's it's fascinating to see all of these psychopomps um finally i just wanted to quickly touch on the idea of river crossings as a liminal space this is very very quick point but it's interesting for all of these stories and for other stories which aren't necessarily about death but are about change um you can look at um the first book of what's it called lord of the rings there we are that that you know obscure book um where they Very. they take the river crossing in fact there's multiple river crossings and each one of them sort of marks the start of or the end of a thing so the initial um uh, ferry crossing they make they're basically leaving the shire mm-hmm. and there's another one later where it's where Frodo is split off from the rest of the cast for a bit as um I can't remember who takes him in the end but basically someone he he's poisoned and needs to be cured by elvish shit but yeah Gryffindel is the yes that's the one um but yeah the river cro- river crossings come up time and time again throughout literature throughout mythology as this point where something changes so at the river crossing, you're at a changing point or in a liminal space where you're going somewhere, something's happening, but you're not really ever sticking at the river crossing. It's And the other thing I find interesting there is it gives a certain character to the people who are staying at the river crossing. They are fairly well always uh, guides. They are fairly well always more haunting creatures because they exist in a space that is fairly well by definition liminal and so they are they are almost a, a part of the environment rather than a character in a lot of ways but they're a part of the environment that can talk often so it's just a very interesting thing to look out for as you read different books whenever you see a river crossing consider is the is this a gate does this act as a gateway between x and y how is this acting in this book because it's fascinating once you start noticing it yeah you see that a lot in the bible too right where famously there's the the parting of the red sea Mm -hmm. you know where the israelites pass from egypt and start their journey towards the promised land towards finding out you know what god has planned for them at mount sinai the same thing happens after Moses dies and they do enter the promised land. They cross the road, uh, the Jordan River, but they that river is parted in the same way that happens mm. with the Red Sea. And they walk on dry land through the river. And of course, Jesus is baptized and baptism in Christianity is a big, yeah. 
you know, the, the river Jordan like represents the river of the passage of death and <clears throat> being baptized as a symbolized death, uh, a choosing to die to, to yourself and recommit the rest of your life to God. Uh, yeah. So yeah, it's like very uh, weighted with death imagery and with change, like you said. But not with sadness is the other thing to point out there. A lot of the older traditions yeah. particularly don't consider death to be a sad event. Right. Um, it's it's a actually, transition. Re- yeah, exactly. It's relatively uncommon from what I have found in, you know, in kind of theology and in mythology and tales in general. It's rare to really look at death, especially death, which is somewhat expected, but death in general is usually considered to be things like heroic or things like needed. It's rarely considered to be purely a sad event. And this is really interesting. Even looking at how funeral traditions work in different places, they're often celebrations. Even in the kind of standard Judeo-Christian belief system, it it should really be a celebration, not a not mourning in quite that way. It's more like recognition of who someone is and who what they were and we'll come back to perceptions of death next time all right and then the last thing i have to talk about is the religion mm, yes. of existentialism um it's not a religion it's a philosophy <laughs> philosophy um, yeah <laughs> so we've been talking about existentialism uh starting with nietzsche an important thing to know about existentialism is that it doesn't it's all about not having rules. So it's kind of difficult to talk about as a system. I'm going to mention like various thinkers here and I'm going to be pretty messy with what they believe. So if you know your existentialism, you'd be like, I guess what you're saying is mostly right. But like I get it that I'm wrong in the details. So existentialism is not very popular in philosophy because of this exact thing of it not having a system. And so it's really hard to write papers that say this system is wrong and let me show you how smart I am by dismantling it <laughs> because you like it's it's kind of like an amorphous thing that when you try to poke it, you can't really get your hands on it. And so it's never it was a movement that happened after World War Two. And I think that it has largely become like common sense in our culture the idea of your life is your own and you should live it as you want to is like, of course, like haven't people always lived that way? Isn't that just normal? And like, no, that's not normal. And it's something that very much came out of a post-World War II French survivors of Nazi occupation, the group of highfalutin philosophers who, you know, had to live through that shit. It's interesting that you say existentialism is not popular because I feel like maybe not amongst philosophers or what have you, but if you're not like a, if you don't define yourself as a philosopher, I think it's very (laughs) popular. Yeah, yeah. Amongst like regular people, I think it's just hard to, well, it's it's hard to talk about it and I'm like avoiding doing that. Yeah. It's kind of what we talked about with Nietzsche, where you realize that society has all these pre-set up things that say who you are and how you fit in and what life is all about and maybe even what happens after you die. 
And then Nietzsche says, you wake up to the fact that that's all a story. And then what are you going to do now that you know that? The existentialists after World War II take it a step further because they're very worried about the moral and ethical implications of telling a bunch of people you can do whatever you feel like you should do. Like that is your liberty to do that and your responsibility to do that after you literally lived through Nazi occupation. Like let's closely examine what that's about, right? Where where Hitler is like, I think I should take over the world. And, you know, Nietzsche was used as a justification for that. The existentialists are responding to that. And instead of rejecting it and going into a kind of Kantian deontological, like we need structures and rules, which is what most of Europe did. We need to like lock down morality real hard and you get 1950s America comes out of that, right? Like that's all rule laden. What these French thinkers like Sartre come up with is you need to look inside of yourself and be honest. And he has this concept of bad faith where you lie to yourself about what is best. So you look at the world and what it says there is for you to do. And you go, yeah, yeah, that is what I should do. Instead of really considering what you want, because it's easier to do what the world wants you to do than to live your life and maximize your freedom and maximize the freedom of others. And it's a lot like, we haven't really talked about this, but for the past few chapters, Lyra has been telling herself that it should be her job to lie on Will's behalf to kind of like almost morally shield him in a way from having to tell lies to their companions because she's really good at it. You know, the Galavespians are like, you told us that blah, blah, blah. And then she's like, no, Will never said that. I said that. I lied to you. You never thought of that, did you? But it ignores this other part of Lyra that she is a literal soothsayer. She is in touch with the truth through the alethiometer and can speak the truth. She's just ignoring that and telling herself, I am Will's liar, because that is like an easier thing for her to do, I think. And she confronts that brutally via the harpies in this section, the way that she has had bad faith with herself. She has a Sartrean bad faith that she's constructed a role for herself that is easier to live than to confront the fact that she has a direct connection to the truth via her nature. And it, she's ashamed of it because the harpies couldn't use it against her if she wasn't ashamed of it. Hmm. Ooh, that's a good point. I didn't think about that. Yeah. So I think that's very like on purpose. It's It very well illustrates Sartre's notions of bad faith. It's also just a very growing up section. Like, totally. You know how, because in the first book, she definitely just loved telling people's stories. Mm-hmm. there's a specific instance I'm going to use when we do the next chapter that we, we saw in the first book. And interesting to see her come to a place where she is ashamed of it. Yeah. And I think the reason that that is so interesting to have Lyra be a liar and a truth teller is kind of what Francis was talking about, the liminality of Lyra as a character Hmm. that she crosses over. She borders both of these. She crosses the border between them. If you think about like Philip Pullman as a writer and as a storyteller, we know that all of this is fiction, 
but we're also pulling a lot of truth out of it, right? Ostensibly, this whole thing is a big lie. There are no people named Will and Lyra, but there is truth within the story, like capital T truth even, about, like you said, growing up uh, and and getting older. And so there's a lot of ambiguity there, uh, which is like something that Simone de Beauvoir, who is another existentialist from this period, emphasizes in her take on existentialism, that you have to hold within yourself that liminality, that ambiguity of having two sides to all of your choices. You cannot tell yourself, like, no regrets. Like, I'm going to do something, and I've totaled up the costs and the benefits, and there's more benefits than costs, therefore this is good. We stamp it good, and I can ignore all the costs, I can ignore all the downsides, and the unintended consequences, and know that I did the best good thing. You can't do that as an existentialist. You need to be honest with yourself. You need to stay in the ambiguity of it. And you need to hold that. And it's painful. It's really hard. And you have to honor how painful it is, the same way that these characters are crossing over the river and having something ripped out of them by their choice. They believe that this is the right and good thing to do, but there is a cost for it inside of themselves that is painful. And they don't get to just throw that away. They have to carry it. That is part of living and being a responsible, ethical person in existentialism. You don't just get to do whatever you want to do and not have a guilty conscience about it. You do what is necessary to expand the freedom of others and live out your freedom, your life, and you carry the consequences of that. Sometimes that means standing up to people who want to have a totalitarian regime. You know, standing up to people who want to take away the freedom of everyone and killing those people. Sometimes you have to do that. Simone de Beauvoir is very clear about this in her book, The Ethics of Ambiguity, and how existentialism is not a free pass to do whatever the fuck you want. That's probably not a direct quote, but... <laughs> Probably. The, the idea is there that you have to carry the cost of, well, we had to stand up to the Nazis and I killed people and I don't get to just say killing those people was the best thing that I could do in that circumstance. I have to carry the fact that I killed people for the rest of my life and own that this was the choice that I made. It's not about like feeling bad because you committed murderer or you broke some kind of rule. You know what I mean? This is about being your whole self, holding the good and the bad and doing your best at every given moment to do the right thing according to your conscience. And and for her, it's essential. The idea of freedom is essential, that we are all free to make choices. And what we should be doing is working to give the freedom to other people which is something that we are going to see in the coming chapters about giving freedom to others when it comes to Lyra and all this pain that she's carrying and Will and all the pain that he's carrying. You know, the direction this is going is a very Simone de Beauvoir kind of thing. Uh, the other big existentialists I want to mention here are Camus and uh, Kierkegaard. And these guys also, they, you know, like all of these are slightly different from each other, right? Like Sartre is focusing on bad faith. Simone is about ambiguity. Camus is 
he's focused on how we don't have any control over life and like the state of the world and how that's kind of absurd when everybody's telling you how meaningful everything is, you know, like, oh, don't do this. Don't do that. It makes God angry or, you know, you'll disappoint the corporation if you don't show up on Saturday, blah, blah, blah. Like all of that stuff is made up. It's just a bunch of stories. People are telling you to control your actions. And that's weird and absurd once you, like, come to the conclusion, like, the reality of that. Um, and that's where Camus, like, focuses his uh, his philosophy is, is examining what it's like to live in that, again, kind of liminal space of, I have to live in a world laden with cultural meanings that is not actually, none of these are, like, really true. There, there is no essential meaning encoded into life. It's all absurd. There is no point to any of this. And it's a lot like the waiting area for the living where they're like, oh, take this paperwork down to the blah, blah, blah. And then you look at the paperwork and it's just random words torn out from a notebook. It's not official yeah. papers. There's no administration. There's no bureaucracy. Like it's all made up. It's, it's all a bunch of bullshit. Um, Camus writes several books that are like this, where people are like, where like the words in their lives um, kind of like turn against them. You mentioned Kafka earlier. Kafka's a lot like this, where like you'll be sitting on a bench and you're just thinking about the word bench and how bench is like a made up thing that we just call that thing a bench and it's not really a bench. And then the bench in reality starts to melt within the story and like turn into a soup or something. And, and you're like, ah, what, you know, what's going on. And so that's just like making literal the absurdity of all of our socially constructed reality. Right. Um, it's a whole literary tradition around that. And I think Pullman is participating in it by having this kind of weird, suburbs of the dead where people eat soup and hang out with their literal death on the porch and it's like it's a very weird disincorporated place that doesn't make any sense and makes you question everything about the ontology of the story like what is real in the story Kierkegaard on the other hand he was like a staunch Christian and he was very mad at other Christians for being a part of the church because their parents were in the church and their grandparents and like, where else are you going to go? There's like, it's not like there's a lot of uh, choices here in Europe about religion, right? I can't become like a Hindu or something, not at this time in history. He was like, you come to church, you say you're a Christian, but you don't do Christian things in your real life. You don't care about Christianity. It's just like a thing that you say you're a part of, but it's not authentic to who you are on the inside. You're not being, this is a kind of Sartrean bad faith thing. You're not being authentic to your internal experience and what you actually think is best. And so Kierkegaard was like, if you don't really believe this stuff, it would be way better for you to get out of the church. Like it would, A, it would be better for the church and B, it would be better for you. Like go find what you believe and then go believe in that. And like God be with you. He's not like, telling people that to be like, and and then you'll burn in hell, you asshole. Like He was like, no, this would be better for you to not believe in this thing that you don't believe in anyway and find out what you actually believe and become who you are. 
because I believe in Christianity, you know, Kierkegaard says, and therefore I am a Christian. So he's like deeply examined everything inside of himself. And he comes to the conclusion. What I like about Kierkegaard is that all the other existentialists are like, oh, institutions are bad. Don't join clubs. Don't join religions. Don't, you know, like don't work for corporations. They're all very anti-capitalist. And Kierkegaard is like, social institutions have value. Just don't fake it. Just don't be an asshole. You know, don't be, don't have a front where you're like, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm totally this or that and not mean it. Like, don't lie to people. And that will do more to bring about a better, you know, institution within society than people half-assing it is his point, basically. Like, the church would actually be Christian if the Christians in it believed in Christianity. It's hard to argue with. And and so in all of these cases, like, what is inside of you and being true to that is, like, very, very important. And those are all values that I think are core to his dark materials. It's not just about being, like, anti-church. It's about not being anti-yourself. The biggest tragedy in this book is when Lyra betrays herself by leaving Pan on that shore. But she, like, holds that herself responsible for that choice, not in a way where she is, like, judging herself, but because she knows that she is doing the best thing and holding the cost for that in her heart. This is, like, the most fucking existentialist thing you'll ever read outside of existentialism itself, is that <clears throat> moment. Like, honestly, I've never read anything that is, like, smacks of all of these philosophers so much as that moment. Because it's clearly a bad thing, but it's also the right thing. Mm -hmm. And, like, that's existentialism all over. It's, you know, life is hard, and to do it right is incredibly difficult and painful, but is the only way to live. Like, living any other way, it's, it's lying. It's lying to yourself and everyone else in a way that is like, it, it, I don't know, it like makes you uh, so much less than who you could be and so much less free and it's sad. So that's all of existentialism. It's so hard to comment on that without going into spoilers. So I think maybe we should just wait until next time. Um, although I think... That is a good lead-in to a conversation that uh, some of us wanted to have about the debate around killing the toad. Aha. Uh -huh. I love this debate. This is a very philosophical yeah. moment. <laughs> no, and that's why I, I put it in the summary, not because it's like super important for understanding the plot, but just because it stuck out as a really important moment thematically and I wanted to make sure we didn't forget to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's the one that stuck in my head of all of the stuff that we wrote or that we um, read just on purely the basis that Will says it so clearly um, that you're not debating killing the toad because you think it's good for the toad we have no idea what the toad feels we cannot know what the toad feels you are just doing it because you feel guilty that it's suffering mm -hmm. i'm sure there's some philosopher that's talked about this way more but i just found it really just very cleverly thought of 
from him. It's like his other observation that maybe a lot of times we do things not because we think it's the best thing to do, but because we don't want to appear weak. Yeah, exactly. Or, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah. Although I will say he fit that into the story a lot better than he fit this random toad that yes. showed up. Yes. It's it, pretty weird. Yeah, it's it's a bit like <laughs> this is the only like non-human animal that we see in this entire place. What? Yep. <laughs> It is very much Philip Pullman wanted to make this point. Mm-hmm. Oh, exactly. Entirely. He he wrote the line, then conceived of a way for that line to happen. But it's... Yeah. Like, it's a good point. It is just a little bit, like, contrived. It's very weird. But, yeah, it's clearly, like, a very allegorical moment. Like, like Caitlin said, it's very much like Pullman being like, I want to talk about something. Everybody sit down and listen. Like, uh, why they he, why he was allowed to keep that in the book. And his editor didn't say, what the fuck? I don't know. <laughs> it was just so dense. Or maybe this is, maybe there was so much like this that the editor did catch. This was just the one that slipped through. But yeah, it was, I, I did still think the philosophical point was at least interesting. Yeah, no, it's an interesting scene. I just don't think it fits. Yeah, absolutely. It's a good moment for Will where he's like, I'm not going to kill any other, like, I don't want to kill any other living things for no good reason. And he is making like an existential stance there. He just doesn't like killing. Um, mm-hmm. He says, swinging the knife around left, right, and center, just carving. Yeah, man, oh, I hate this so much. Oh, I really it's don't hard. like this. Slash. Crash. And that, yeah, and then the next scenes, he's like threatening the harpies with the knife, right? Like, what was he going to do if he could get a hold of one of them? Was he just trying to scare them, or he's going to stab them? Because he always does. Because he is yeah. a killer. Because well, he... he's a killer. <laughs> no, <laughs> he kid. did realize that he could slice her head off and chose not to. I have to wonder, like, if he sliced the head off, would the body fall and there just be a ghost harpy? Because they're in the world of the dead. <laughs> yeah, do they? I actually did now who's think dead, about that. <laughs> yeah, like, all the bureaucrats who stand there passing out random notes, like, do they die? What happens when they die? Yeah, I assume they're just other living people who got there accidentally. Oh, I assumed they were dead people who didn't get on the boat. Oh, really? I, I actually assumed they were angels, but well, not not angels, but something equivalent. Mhm. Like right. they're made to do that. Again, very Nixian. Yeah, but I can also see uh, like I like that or like I assume that there are dead people who don't want to get on the boat, like don't want to know what happens on the other side. Mhm. And so are just put somewhere or give themselves the task to fight the boredom so i have a question and i know there's no textual answer for this but i'm just curious what your thoughts are on this are all deaths male or are all deaths opposite sex like demons are because we only see two deaths really like in detail the old woman's and lyra's and they both seem male seem is not is yeah. But we really only hear about male ones because uh, Lyra talks about like the ones that were outside, like they were like playing. Oh yeah, a, the crowd of them. They were, were like, like betting or something, weren't they? Or, or or doing something? Yeah, playing some kind of gambling game, I think. Um. So the only deaths we see are male, but who the heck knows? Yeah, basically that. That's what I thought. Just related to death, what I find interesting about what Pullman is doing here, especially with like Western society, is very death phobic. You know, modern Western society, anyway. Uh, death is like very kind um and especially like the ferryman 
it's there. Those are some of the most moving parts I thought of this whole thing where he talks about having a baby crying in his lap or, you know, the rich people versus the poor people and things like that. And, and, uh, death is not like this scary lorded over you kind of, you know, like we, we met earlier when, um, Oh, why can't I think of his name? The Transformer, Metatron, who, you know, <laughs> he comes down from the big cloud and he's like screaming to the authority, like, I've found them, my lord, and I will smite them. And like, you know, it's and Balthamus is like very scared of him. That is kind of what you might expect death to be like, this big, scary, like, oh, no. And it's very kind and very soft spoken and just that's interesting choice i think and an important choice where he's saying that death is like this natural thing it's not something to be feared uh before we move on to mary and the mulefa uh i just want to say that there's a line here after lyra leaves pan um that goes and thus the prophecy that the master of jordan college had made to the librarian that lyra would make a great betrayal and it would hurt her terribly was fulfilled. Do you think that's a retcon? It felt that way to me. Uh, if you just read the first, even the first two books before you get here, feels like her betrayal was Roger because she right. didn't realize that she was bringing him to his death. Right. Yeah, that's definitely how I interpreted it before. It feels like a retcon, but also I kind of like it because... What she did with Roger was a mistake more than a betrayal. Mm -hmm. And, like, that word never really sat right. well with me. I've just always felt like it, like he had an idea in the Golden Compass and he talked about that. And then he got here and he was like, oh, wait, this fits better. Okay, so another question. This book is called The Amber Spyglass. In chapter 20, we finally get the phrase, the amber spyglass, um, referring to the device that the Mulefa help her make to, like, hold the amber plates that she made together. Does this work for you? Do you think this is also a retcon or of, of some kind? Or, like, he basically, I don't know, I get the feeling that Philip Pullman wrote The Golden Compass, wrote The Subtle Knife, and then was like, shit, for this third book, I also need an object with an adjective. You are coming at this from a very American uh, uh, viewpoint. Oh, that's right, because the first one does say Northern Lights. And it is called Northern uh, Lights in England, where it was published first. Okay. Yep. Well, then, I guess never mind. <laughs> I wasn't going to say that one. I was going to wait for it all to play out and then at the end be like, um... Excuse me? I think we're being a little bit Americocentric right now. <laughs> I like that you decided the to Brit be... who just celebrated Thanksgiving? It was great. <laughs> well, it tasted good. Yeah. Um, I, I, I absolutely do think that he was like, well, sure, we'll just call it that. Like, I, I do think maybe he just couldn't come up with a title, so he was like, this kind of fits with the American naming system, so let's do it. I don't think he invented a plot device for it to have a title. I think it was more oh, like, yeah, no. eh, I can't come up with anything else, so sure. I, yeah, I do think that the um, the Amber Spyglass itself and how it fits in with 
um, the SRAF slash dust feels like a very integral part of the story. Like that part doesn't feel super gimmicky. Yeah. Um, it's more just like, I guess the Amber spyglass while being very integral to the story is a much smaller part of this book than the other two objects are relative to their books, I guess. So it feels like a little bit disproportionate, I guess, in in a way. Um, Another thing that I wanted to point out from like a storycraft perspective about this chapter was that um, I really like the way that Pullman tells the reader about Mary's discovery about the Seraph, not when Mary figures it out and makes the discovery, but when she tells the Mulefa. I guess there's like two different ways that you can pull this off in order to not just like info dump the same exposition twice. You can spell it all out the first time and then the second time just be like, and Mary told them what happened. And Philip Pullman does do that sometimes. Mm -hmm. Um, But I think it was really effective here this time that that he kind of did the opposite where at the first time he's like and then she made a discovery and then waits to tell the reader what the discovery is until mary's sharing it with the mulefa because i think it is pretty effective at kind of like building up the suspense and having the discovery kind of like land with impact at the end of the chapter yeah i think it also situates us as an audience with the Mulefa. Yeah, and- it puts mm-hmm. you in their headspace, kind of. Yeah, it's cool. Exactly. Um, okay. I'm then- so excited for this next point because you are so <laughs> wrong, but let's do it. <laughs> Am I? Okay, okay. Uh, I'm going to read this quote and then we can discuss it. Um, so this is talking about Mary being up on in the canopy. There was a light breeze which lifted a faint scent out of the flowers and rustled the stiff leaves, and Mary imagined a huge, dim benevolence holding her up like a pair of giant hands. As she lay in the fork of the great branches, she felt a kind of bliss she had only felt once before, and that was not when she made her vows as a nun. So what I really enjoy about this, especially based on previous, I'm going to say much more private conversations we've had, you equate the bliss of just the wind and the trees and just feeling nice to an orgasm. <laughs> like, okay. This sounds I... more like meditation <laughs> to me is all I'm saying. I actually agree with Anya a bit, but I will come on to why. Interesting. I feel like there is a clear like wink at the audience when it's like, and it wasn't when she made her vows as a nun. Yes. Like, like, <laughs> You know, like, I don't know. It's very much, I feel like it's like the opposite of a chaste nun. Yes. And like the word bliss is like very often associated with orgasmic satisfaction, which is like, I'm totally fine with the comparison. I'm just really sad that I feel like this is implying that Mary has only orgasmed once and also like what the fuck. Yeah. Like I disagreed with you when you said that, but now that you read it and said that only once before like from the text, like that's pretty inarguable. And I did 
like when that happened, I was like, oh, is this like an orgasm sex thing? Uh, so I definitely had that feeling too. I don't, it's hard for me to believe that Mary has only had one orgasm. This is very difficult for me to believe. I have yeah, a I don't slight, believe that at all. I have a slight Diff- slightly different reading of it but similarly sexual i do think that as anya pointed out um the fact that he very much mentioned and it was not when she was a nun was it implying that it was something that she couldn't do when she was a nun right. and one of the few things which gives you a lot of bliss which you can't do when you're a nun or one of the <laughs> classic ones would definitely be fucking <laughs> now this but i also picked up on the word bliss and i would say the situation and the sort of she's she's lying there feeling feeling bliss now that's not orgasm that's right. afterwards more specifically the i was thinking of the phrase you know postcoital bliss mhm so it may be. I, I, I think that I, I don't think it's that she has literally only ever had one orgasm or that she has only ever had sex once. I didn't read I read it, it as being evocative of kind of post coitus rather than So it's like hmm. she's just thinking of the best sex she's yes, ever had. That's what that's I'm how thinking. I took it too. Yeah. Yeah. That she was like, there was one other experience in my life that compares to this. And it's implied that it was sexual, but it was not like, and that was an orgasm. It was like yeah. the whole package of that, you know, during and after kind of a thing. That makes way more sense to me and and is immediately how I interpreted it. Because there are like, I don't know, like there are bad orgasms and there are bad, there's, <laughs> yes. bad, there's bad sex. <laughs> like it exists. It, it happens, you know? Yes. So like... <laughs> they're not all great and so like they're you could definitely create a hierarchy of your experiences in that regard and and <laughs> one of them was probably going to be the best i just i definitely feel that this is like a line that is in the eye of the beholder you know like interpret oh, yes. as you will yes. like he didn't he he didn't say it for a reason but i mm. just feel that the interpretation that she's only ever had one orgasm in her whole life is wrong because that's just sad. <laughs> I feel I feel that like, one I is know. wrong, yes. But I feel that it is still okay. definitely a sex thing. <laughs> yeah. It did make me sad, and I want it to be wrong. And I'm glad that you have more or less convinced me that it's wrong. But I don't know. To me, I feel like the scale of like sexual experiences and bliss is more of a continuous spectrum Whereas, like, this is written as, like, a discrete category. Maybe she, like, only had sex on MDMA once. Um. <laughs> it, it, it definitely implies that there were, that it's one of the most blissful feelings she's had. I think anything aside from that is us adding our own interpretation. On a completely different note, and just to end on something that makes no sense... Or just that I think maybe we, we should were already think about doing that. <laughs> well, yes, but like Mary had a Swiss Army knife and she created bow and arrows. Like, fuck you! No, she didn't. <laughs> <laughs> it was a lot of work with a Swiss Army knife, but you yeah. could. It would take, but like, I, she just has the knowledge of how to do it. I mean, like, it's also it's not actually that easy to make. I don't know if you ever tried to make a bow and arrow, 
but it's yeah. not all it's that really easy to hard. make. It takes a while. Exactly. And arrows exactly. are hard to make because they've got to be straight and fly straight. Well, actually, they don't fly straight. They fly by bending, but it's weird. It's why you can technically shoot around something that's in your path. But yes, basically, you need the right wood it, and you need to have a lot of skill. That's why Fletcher's was a whole fucking job. They didn't just fletch. That bit made me so angry. Like, why yeah. wouldn't Stop you just... Stop trying to make fletch happen. <laughs> <laughs> why wouldn't nerd. you just make a heavy ball that you can throw up into the trees? Exactly. That's a really good point. I hadn't like... thought about this at all. But it is world-breakingly wrong that she <laughs> that this do this. physicist knows yeah. how to make a bow and arrow. I mean, yeah. I'm sure Anyways. I could improvise one, but with a Swiss army knife, it would take a fucking long time. No way, And it man. wouldn't... It wouldn't work very well, like no, no, it would be they're they're hard to make. <laughs> Turns out it is much less plausible than her being an experienced rock climber. Yeah. Yes. Maybe maybe she was part of a you know how like nuns and monks they're like we make this whiskey or so maybe they made bows and arrows. We don't know sure. her backstory. She, she was still a physicist when she was a nun. We do know she was Damn still it. a physicist when she was a nun. Physics a, is not bushcraft. <laughs> maybe, yeah. but maybe their order made vintage, bespoke, hardwood mm-hmm. longbows. Mm-hmm. Her very liberal order, where she didn't even wear a habit, was definitely <laughs> wood carving. Yeah, yeah, one hundred percent. Anyways, next time. Oh, that's not me. Okay, well, that's it for this episode. Join us next time where we will be talking about chapters 23 through 25. Uh, You'll notice that's slightly shorter. We're only doing three chapters next time um, because one of them has a lot to unpack. If you like our show, please take some time and leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. I'm Anya, and you can follow me on Twitter at Strangely Literal. That's Strangely, then L I T E R L. I'm Caitlin, and you can follow me on Twitter at Inferior Caitlin. I'm Francis, and you can follow me on Twitter at Francis Windrum. Follow the show on Twitter at MOTPod. If you need more than 280 characters to speak your mind, send your emails to contact at hollowedgroundmedia.com. And definitely don't remember that the Galavespians are also people who are present in the story and matter as characters. <laughs>